Flop, a podcast for the best and worst historical fiction has to offer. I'm your host, Erin. And I'm Grace. And each week we'll be reading a different historical fiction book to see if they're a five or a flop. Our theme for season one is reading around the world, which means two books per continent. And today we're taking it to South America and reading Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. And we have a lot of really good stuff to say about this book. And I think similar to Hamnet, we have some slight disagreement. So So that'll be interesting. Yes. All right, Grace, what's new with you? Anything exciting going on this week? No, not at all. Very little. You started a new job? Yes. Actually, you had just started that when we first filmed. Yes. I'm settling in more to the job, but because it's a work from home job, like settling in is extremely literal. Like I'm in my cozy blankie all day. It's incredible. I get up and I make my matcha whenever I want. My new matcha that you brought me from Japan. Thank you. I don't know if we've said this before on the pod, but I also work from home and it is a dream come true. I do my laundry during the workday. That's the biggest part. We're thriving. Um, But yeah, as Grace mentioned, I did just get back from Japan at the time of recording this, but at the time of listening since we record ahead, probably a while ago. I am finally all caught up on my jet lag. I felt like I had a three-day hangover this week. But you're good now? I'm good now. Okay. I actually have some candy for you in my bag, (gasps) so remind me after this. Thank you. We cannot eat in the recording studio. That would be extremely disrespectful to the equipment. At the DC Public Library, shout out. Our favorite library. Now, Erin, so... Off pod, we had talked a lot about all the stuff you did in Japan. You know, you went to Disney, you went to Kyoto, Mm -hmm. you did a bunch of Snoopy themed activities. But the biggest question is, how much reading did you get done on the plane? Oh my God. So I actually got done a lot. But let me tell you, I had the biggest nightmare because I didn't realize I had no storage on my iPad. So (gasps) halfway through my 14 hour flight, all of my goddamn books had undownloaded. So I had to go and buy Wi-Fi so I could re-download it. And a little spoiler, what I was reading at the time was a book we're reading in future episodes on the pod. And it was horrible. So Boo. I spent money to read a horrible book on a 14-hour flight. Okay. So not I did not know that. You texted me like in a panic at the airport being like, I have to re-download all of my books. I didn't realize you had to do it again yeah. in the middle of your flight. Oh, I fully had to pay for Wi-Fi to do that too. Because I'm like, what else am I going to do? Just sit and stare at the wall, which is what the person sitting next to me was doing on the way back. Which kind of props to her. That's kind of badass, but not for me. It's so sad to her that she had to stare straight ahead on your 14-hour flight instead of listening to some really interesting episodes of Fiverr Flop. Exactly. Particularly the Hamnet episode. Ripped to Hamnet, you would have loved airplanes. Oh my gosh. Um, But yeah, so the bulk of my reading was for the pod. Um, I won't say which book. It's also not a book from South America, so it is a different continent. But... In terms of what else I'm reading, I did just finish a book today. It's called Good Is Gone, which, spoiler, not very good. Okay. And it literally says on the cover, a novel of suspense, which is interesting. And I, you know me, I like true crime, so I thought I would really enjoy this. Yeah. Just kind of bland and like, if anyone's read this, please let me know. But the mother was so unlikable that it made the book unbearable to read. See, I love picking up a thriller because... It's such a low stakes way to like have a little spook in your day, you know, (laughs) but because there are so many thrillers, like any genre like that, like thriller, romance, like any type of genre where you can buy a book at the grocery store, like they're so hit or miss because there's so many of them. Like you have no idea if you're picking up one that's going to be good or not. And this was one I found on the street in front of my apartment. Uh, So it was a real mixed bag. So we know why someone put it on the street. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you been reading anything good lately? Yes. I've actually been like really cramming 
books for the pod. So I won't talk about a lot of those. But actually, I started a book yesterday that I plan on finishing in the bathtub tomorrow. It's a nonfiction book. It's a biography. And it's called The Widow Clicquot. And it's about the woman who ran and basically created the iconic champagne house Veuve Clicquot. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this is like post-revolutionary France, not really an era where women were, you know, running major businesses. But when you are a widow, it kind of allows you... Yeah, it opens up some doors. It allows you the social freedoms of a married woman and the financial freedom of a man. So that's how she was able to you know, take her champagne house and run with it. And so I'm enjoying that very much. This is kind of related, but not really. So in addition to being a creative writing major, I was also a religion major in undergrad. And one of the things I remember talking about is how a lot of women like back in like the 15, 1400s would become nuns because that was the only way they were allowed to like continue their studies. Yeah, that's really sad. Kind of similar, but at least they had an option in the face of all the limitations in society. Yeah, or like you see like, Women who became painters were most often the wives or daughters of painters. Veuve Clicquot had this champagne house because Mm -hmm. it was her husband's champagne house. And then he died. And so she was like, well, it's mine now. So sorry to her that her husband died, but glad she could be Make famous. Make out of it, right? Exactly. R.I.P. R- R- to Monsieur Clicquot. You would have loved Veuve Clicquot champagne. <laughs> and I am, um, if you aren't following already, at Grace Hand Reads is Grace's personal reading account on Instagram. Yes. Bookstagram, so, I believe is the correct term. Um, and I do see that recently you finished a book by my favorite author growing up, Gail Carson Levine. Yes. If anyone either read the books or watched the movies, there was this specific time when Disney was doing all of this Tinkerbell media. And it was not Peter Pan related. It was about Tinkerbell and all of the fairies that lived in Pixie Hollow. I loved those books. Yes. So I picked this book up because I found it at a used bookstore for like two bucks. It was the second Tinkerbell book. It was by Gail Carson Levine of like Ella Enchanted fame. Like Ferris, which was my favorite book that I read probably 20 times as a kid. Ferris. Palace of Mirrors, like X, like hit ones, after hit from Gail Carson the Levine. book covers in the world. Absolutely. But it's like a really beautifully like watercolor illustrated book about Tinkerbell and her fairy friends going on a quest that like slowly drives them crazy. It's like a weirdly dark children's book, but it was like as weird and as beautifully illustrated as I remember it being. And when this becomes a Gail Carson Levine podcast only, you were here to hear it first. Oh my gosh. The Tinkerbell podcast. Oh my God. Honestly, spinoff series. Okay. But first, we have to talk about Fruit of the Drunken Tree, which is our book for this week. And I thought I'd start off just reading the back cover summary like we always do. Yes. Hit me. Seven-year-old Chula and her older sister Cassandra enjoy carefree lives thanks to their gated community in Bogota. But the threat of kidnappings, car bombs, and assassinations hover just outside the neighborhood walls, where the godlike drug lord Pablo Escobar continues to elude authorities and capture the attention of the nation. When their mother hires Petrona, a live-in maid from the city's guerrilla-occupied slum, Chula makes it her mission to understand Petrona's mysterious ways, which I have some thoughts about. But Petrona's unusual behavior belies more than shyness. She is a young woman crumbling under the burden of providing for her family as the riptide of first love pulls her in the opposite direction. As both girls' families scramble to maintain stability amidst the rapidly escalating conflict, Petrona and Chula find themselves entangled in a web of secrecy that will force them both to choose between sacrifice and betrayal. Inspired by the author's own life and told through the alternating perspectives of the willful Chula 
and the achingly hopeful Patrona. Fruit of the Drunken Tree contrasts two very different but inextricably linked coming-of-age stories. In lush prose, Rojas Contreras has written a powerful testament to the impossible choices women are often forced to make in the face of violence and the unexpected connections that can blossom out of desperation. A mouthful. Yes, a mouthful. And as this book synopsis said, it is actually based on the author's own life, which we'll go into more in the history section of this. The author, of course, was born and raised in Bogota, but she now lives in California. And she also has a memoir out called The Man Who Could Move the Clouds. Oh. I'm pretty interested because I'm pretty sure these are her only two published books. Okay. So that juxtaposition of... Well, I guess not really juxtaposition, but... Two books based on her life. Yeah, two books based on her life is really interesting to me. So I'm very curious to see, like, how The Man Who Can Move the Clouds would compare to this one. Yeah, interesting. I did not know that. I would be interested in reading the memoir and contrasting. Yeah. So I'm guessing based on that statement, you haven't read anything else by this author, but were you familiar with the book at all before we read it? No, actually. I was not familiar with her at all. I had not heard of this book, but when I, you know, looked it up for the sake of this podcast, it seemed like it had been pretty successful, done pretty well. It was a relatively recent release, I believe. I think so. Yeah. Past couple of years. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. I'm happy to say that I liked this one. It was not a flop like some of the other books that we've read for future episodes. Essentially, it's the story of Chula. It's from her perspective, mostly. There are sections that are from the perspective of Patrona, which I think is the thing that we feel is most important is what happens in those Patrona sections. We'll get into more in our discussion. Yeah, but through the eyes of this young child that's maybe 10 or so, Mm -hmm. um, some time passes throughout the book, but she's roughly 10 years old. And this girl who is roughly 13 or 14 during this violence in Bogota that is linked to Pablo Escobar. Yes. So compared to our last two books, this is very recent. I mean, we talked about... 1800s China and 1500s England. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. So I think this is like just on the cusp of what we can consider historical fiction. Yeah, I do feel like it is a little bit of a stretch to say historical fiction. Yeah. Because it was so real. I mean, if it overlaps with the time I was alive, I think in my head I have difficulty like reconciling that as historical fiction yeah but really it is like it's a major historical event that has since progressed past the ongoing nature of it yeah Um, kind of our rule of thumb that i had in in school studying history was something can be studied as history starting when it is about 30 years past and we are like just under the wire for that like during the middle of the book one of the events that it hinges on is the assassination of the politician Galan, Mm -hmm. which I hope that's how his name is pronounced. And I just did a quick Google Google on that. And that was in 1989. So we have, I think we've snuck under the wire there for for the definition of history. And I do think it's important to include our disclaimer right here because this book is based on the author's own experiences, her own life. Our judgments are based on the book and its characters as characters, as a work of historical fiction, not passing any judgment on, you know, the real historical figures, the real people this was based on. Yeah, especially because this is so close to her in a way that most historical fiction isn't. Maggie O'Farrell didn't know Hamnet. Unfortunately, we would have loved to meet him, (laughs) but we are just looking at this as literature and judging it based on its merits as a book. Yes. So I think it's time for us to go into some of our thoughts about the book. Okay. I was really excited to read this one because in the past 
year and a half. I've now been to Colombia twice. My boyfriend is from there originally, one of Grace's many roommates, Santiago. Yes. Uh-huh. And of course, Santiago is the last name of Chula in the book. So Which there was, was some, overlap. some Santiago representation. I texted him about it. He didn't really care that much, but it was okay. Well, um, he should have. But so I was really excited because over this past, you know, however long, I've been learning more about Colombia and about the history. So I was really excited for this to see how it was coming from based on the author's own experiences. Mm -hmm. But I will say, I wish I had been more aware throughout reading it. It was based on the author's own experiences, because I think that would have shaped how I saw the perspectives in the books. Because obviously, or not obviously, but the author was in Chula's shoes. So that was the position she was going through. She was the child, and she had a Patrona-like figure, like their own living maid. And to clarify, yeah, Patrona is... Chula and her family are wealthier. Patrona is poor. She comes from an impoverished family. Mm -hmm. And she is a maid who comes and works with them, even though she is only a a 13-year-old girl, essentially. But she's still a bit older than Chula and her sister. And she's the one, Patrona is the one providing for her family. And she's their source of income because her father's passed away. Her mother is, I believe she had asthma. She has a lot of- She's sick and not really able to work. And then she has a younger sister and brothers who joined guerrilla fighters in the region and were eventually... Bad things happened to them. Bad things happened to them. So we have this 13-year-old girl who has her whole family, you know, their hopes and dreams resting on her shoulders. And in particular, she has a little sister whose name is Aurora. And she's just really hoping that she can make a safe and happy life for Aurora because she hasn't been able to have one for herself. But along the way, as... You know, Chula is really wanting to understand more about her and is kind of fascinated by her in a way we don't really understand, or at least I didn't really understand. Patrona is also going through the life of a teenage girl. She falls for this guy she meets who winds up being a very bad person and tries to get her to orchestrate the kidnapping of Chula and her sister Cassandra, which is what the author was faced with. And Patrona eventually doesn't go through with it. And that's when the family immigrates to the United States. Yeah. So we open with Chula and her family in the United States. And I actually thought the opening section was really powerful and really good. The first, like, page and a half. Not that the first chapter wasn't good, but they were like, Ingrid Rojas Contreras hits you like, wham, straight out of the gate with Chula, who is 15. Mm -hmm. So we're a little bit in the future from the events of the rest of the book getting a letter from Patrona, and it is a picture of Patrona and a man and a baby. And she is saying, here, I have it exactly here. Oh, and she says, describing the man, he is afroed and striking, weighing his cursed hand on her shoulder. I know what he's done, and it turns my stomach, but who am I to say whom Patrona should allow into a family portrait such as this? So that's like a punch in the teeth. You're like, who is this man? Who is Patrona? Where did the baby come from? What did he do? You have all of these mysteries set up in that like line. And that's the end of the first paragraph. And we know going in, he's a bad guy. Like he is not a good person. And we eventually come to find out because of her ties to this man, Patrona gets into really bad situations. She winds up raped. So that's where the baby comes from. And then somehow unknown Chula really at this point is how did Patrona wind up saying with this guy? Yes. So the two threads of the book that for the most part, I think they kind of run parallel to each other. They don't really meet. On the one hand, we have the relationship between Chula and Patrona. 
<laughs> and then on the other hand, we have all of the political unrest that's happening in Colombia. So we have Pablo Escobar. We have, like I said before, the assassination of Galan, who was running for president. We have the attacks of the guerrillas mm-hmm. amongst, like, against random citizens in Colombia. Yeah. And it's towards the end of the book when those things come to a head, when yes. Petrona's boyfriend tries to have her facilitate the kidnapping of the wealthy Santiago children. Mm-hmm. And I think what I found intriguing about this book was that dual perspective of Petrona and Chula. And it does serve an imper- important purpose because Chula is a child. There's some stuff she doesn't quite understand, she doesn't pick up on. So those Petrona chapters help clarify that, help explain what's going on from her position. Yes. But I do think we have some different ideas about this because, and in some of the reviews I read about this, I saw people agree with me that the book almost would have worked better entirely from Petrona's perspective. Yes. So what we get is I would say it's like 80% Chula, 20% Petrona. Like we get these flashes of Petrona, but it does not dominate the book. It is Chula that dominates the book. And of course, like we said, Chula is the sort of author stand-in. And um, the Petrona chapters are also much shorter in length. They're never nearly as long as the Chula ones. No, they're kind of snippets in between the main chapters. Mm -hmm. And you would have preferred more, if not only, to have Petrona. I really prefer the Petrona chapters because they clarified so much of the confusion left by the childish perspective. And I thought we needed more of that in Mm -hmm. there. It takes a really skilled author to navigate the perspective of a child. I think it can work really, really well. But essentially what you have to do is leave threads there for the reader to pick up that your narrator won't pick up. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that most people know best from Room. Did you ever read the book Room? No, I did not. Okay. Or if you've seen the movie, it's the the book by Emma Donahue, the movie starring Brie Larson, for which she won her Oscar, about a woman who is kidnapped and held in a shed for 15 years or whatever. And she has a boy in this shed. So he's only ever known life inside of this shed. And it, the book is from the perspective of the child. And oh he is like happy because he thinks his life is normal. And the whole time you're getting, like, just these snippets of, like, what you know the reality must be for his mother. I think this way, it worked for me mostly. It didn't work completely. Like, I don't think it was 100% skillfully executed Mm -hmm. because it did leave me with a few questions about, like, things in the political landscape. Um, Not that we needed to know 100% of the details, but not everything was clear. Like you said, it helped to have those sections from Patrona to clear up the questions. Mm -hmm. My main thing, when I started the book... I thought we didn't need them at all. I was like, I think I could do without yeah. these parts. Um, it and might I be think better. I started the same way. Yeah, I was like, maybe the like the confusion from not having a, like not an adult, but like an older person clearing up my questions. Maybe that confusion is okay. And as I got to the end, I started appreciating those sections much more, especially because towards the end, Chula and Patrona are more often frequently apart, so they're not like narrating the same thing. They're telling you two different stories. The plot lines do diverge a bit towards the end there. Mm -hmm. And especially when they wind up in two different countries. Of course, because Patrona is in Colombia, Chula immigrates to the United States. Mm -hmm. But I think where I come down on this is I don't think the author would have been capable of writing more of Patrona than she did. Okay. I think she did it to the best of her capability because partially we know she she was Chula. Yes. She grew up, uh, she, you know, immigrated to the United States. She grew up 
wealthy. A plot line of the book is that their father is kidnapped by gorillas and he's held for several years before being returned to them. Mm-hmm. And the real life author, her father was kidnapped, but he actually knew someone who worked with the gorillas. And so he was released immediately. Yes. So she did not go through the same kind of hardships that someone who grew up in extreme poverty like Patrona did. And I do think it's important to clarify here what we mean by wealthy is obviously in the context of a book Mm -hmm. because... Not extremely wealthy. No, because there is an extremely wealthy character in the book, the oligarch, which I actually want to bring up because I didn't really understand that character as more than just an example to show us. Like, Chula was wealthy by Patrona standards... But not by the oligarchs. Yes. So we have this character, the oligarch, who is a fabulously wealthy person. She is our stand-in for the wealthy. Patrona is our stand-in for the incredibly impoverished. And Chula and the Santiago family are secure. Yes. They never they, – they have enough to eat. Whatever hardships they encounter are not ones that their money can buy their way out of. Like when there are car bombings in Colombia. Yes. When everyone's water is turned off. Like those are things that will affect everybody. But they don't have – they don't face hardships because of money. That's a good way to put it. So if you read the Patrona sections, which we've said are shorter than the rest of the book, to me, the language is much more dreamlike. Those sections are briefer and they are less literally descriptive. Like Chula interacts with the world around her in a very physical manner. Yes, and I and think I, that's reflective of being a child as well. Exactly. Yeah. Like you think a lot more about your your things that are in your house. But Patrona's sections are much less literal. They're much more emotional. I, like I said, to me, I found them almost dreamlike. So I think that showed to me that the author was stretching herself to write Patrona. And I don't know if she could have done more. I agree. And I think dreamlike's a really good word for it that I feel was a little bit, I don't know, maybe it was too much for a 13-year-old girl because Mm -hmm. I didn't realize for a bit how young Petrona was and how close in age they were because she reads a lot older. And maybe because she's forced to grow up a lot more. She is the provider for her family. She has to be an adult. But I think dreamlike is an interesting word because that comes into play with Petrona a lot. So let's talk for a sec about what the actual drunken tree is and the scene where Petrona eats from it. Yeah, we put the same thing in our notes, which is what was going on with that? Because the the drunken tree is obviously important because it's in the title of the book. Yes. And that's the thing. The symbolism of that is lost on me the most. Yes. So basically how Chula in her childish perspective describes it is it's this fruit or it's this tree that bears fruit that sort of acts as a drug and intoxicates you. Mm-hmm. And makes you go into a dreamlike trance state. And this is a tree that they have in their yard. Yes. And it smells beautiful and intoxicating, but it's really dangerous. Yes. And I have no idea, actually, if this is something that she made up or if this was a tree that they had in their house at Columbia. Yeah, I didn't really look too much into that and saw it. Because I the symbolism is what's more important here. Yeah. And she didn't say in her author's note, like... This tree was so important to me. Like, we don't have any idea. And there is one important, very important scene where Petrona is eating the fruit, which everyone knows not to do because it puts you in a dreamlike trance state. And I couldn't figure out the importance of that. No, not at all. Me either. Like, they see her. She goes out. She is eating off of the tree. They run out. They scream. They yell, Petrona, stop it. Stop. And she's still eating the fruit off of the tree. And... I was like, is she trying to kill herself? I don't know. That's what I thought. I just, like, I literally don't know. The more I think about it, the more I wonder if that's included because it's Chula's explanation for how Petrona's behavior changed. 
Because from her perspective, it almost seems like... A switch flipped. A switch flipped. She kind of became possessed, started listening more to her boyfriend, Gorian, and started associating herself with all these dangerous figures. So I wonder if that's a symbolism for a child to employ, to explain it. Maybe. That would make sense. Like I said, otherwise I don't really know. Like this was something that was not – there were a few things in this book I didn't think were as flushed out as they could be. But because the drunken tree is so important simply simply by nature of being in the title, I thought that this could have been – I don't need my hand to be held, but I feel like we're both pretty good at reading between the lines. And we were both like, I don't know what the significance of this is in this moment. I really struggled with that. Not that I'm glad to hear you struggled too, but I'm glad it wasn't something obvious that I just feel really stupid about. Yeah. And then after that, the drunken tree was not a huge part of the the rest of the book. Except in reference to Petrona eating from it. Yes. It served that purpose in the beginning. The other thing that honestly it didn't feel that fleshed out to me and maybe it just didn't need to be was the relationship between Petrona and Chula. I don't really know why they especially why Petrona came to care for Chula so deeply. I actually understood it better the other way around. I understood why Petrona came to care for Chula because I think she saw her as like the life her little sister could have if oh. she gets out of poverty. That but makes sense. I don't understand why Chula was – she's kind of obsessed with Petrona. Like, she's so fascinated by her. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, well, maybe it's, like, a little kid just seeing, like, an older, cool teenager. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's kind of what I thought. They're so close in age. Like, 10 and 13 is really not that different. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know where that fascination came from. Do you think it maybe could just be – that Petrona lives such a different life to Chula that it she, like, be. can't even imagine it. It could be. Because otherwise, that's my – that was what I was thinking is just someone who's a little older than you that you are just become obsessed with when yeah. you're a kid. Which could – I wish that had been fleshed out a bit more. I wish when we had the older Chula at the end, she kind of reflected on that a bit more. I think that would have cleared some up. Mm-hmm. And I do think we didn't necessarily need it because, like we said – the, the way that the plots come together of the relationship and the political situation in Colombia, the way that they come together is that Patrona's boyfriend wants her to facilitate the two girls being kidnapped, Chula and her sister, so they can have ransom money, essentially. Yes. And Patrona refuses to do it. And I don't think that relationship needs to be strengthened for that plot line because I think that really just hinged on Patrona's moral compass. Yeah, and I agree. But it would have been nice to have it for those sections in the rest of the book where Petrona is kind of embedding herself into the Santiago family. And that's where the political context comes into such importance here. Kidnappings and ransom money, very, very common. Chula's father being kidnapped. I'll talk about this more in the history section, but they contact him via radio station. They used to broadcast messages mm-hmm. to, to people who are hostages with the hopes of them hearing it. Mm-hmm. And that was a radio station that actually exists. That was a very real thing. So that historical contest, political environment, very important, central to the novel. Mm -hmm. However, going off of that, I don't feel that all aspects of the political context were as fleshed out as they could have been to better our understanding. Yes. And honestly, to me, that came in full force at the end. Mm -hmm. I did not enjoy the end of this book that much. Yes. It didn't tarnish the rest of it for me, but I was like, there is such an an easy way to go about this um because like we said before as a consequence of not facilitating this kidnapping patrona's boyfriend arranges for her to be gang raped yes and that is 
extremely difficult to read about. And honestly, I think Ingrid Rojas Contreras takes a lot of care in the section where Patrona is narrating that to remove us from it. Yes. I appreciated that as a reader. Yes. There was a huge distance from the reality of what was happening to her during that section. And that also reinforces Patrona's kind of like dreamlike state throughout the novel. So it did fit in very well. That poetic language is full force. Yes. Yes. But essentially, as a result of that, Patrona develops amnesia, which to me came very out of left field and was very unnecessary. Yeah, I didn't really understand that. I also didn't really understand how true it was. So basically, she has amnesia. She, Gorian comes and finds her. is like, oh my God, my love, we were married. You're my wife, blah, blah, blah. So she goes back to him with the baby, which is how she winds up in the photograph when Trula eventually contacts her. Mm-hmm. But at the end, it kind of seemed to me like she had regained some memory and was plotting a way to eventually leave Gorian? Yes, it was really weird. So when she when he found her, he said, oh, you're my fiance. We yes. were engaged and you were pregnant, so we were going to get married. And she was like, okay, like believed it. And then between him telling her that and them getting married, she remembered the truth, which is what he had arranged to happen to her. But she married him anyway. And there was some language about that happening her doing that to protect her sister. I don't know if it was to protect the same, like her sister from having the same thing happen to her, but that was not clear how those two things would correlate. And then she also said that as a consequence of his guilt for making this happen to her, Gorion like left the guerrilla movement and took up like a good, like a normal job. And that seemed also very random to me that I was like, I don't think he would do that. I also don't think he deserves a redemption arc. No. So you're right. Like she is like, she hasn't told anyone that she remembers the truth and she's like saving money to go with her son and like run away, which is good. That's a good ending. But I was so confused why all of this stuff was necessary when I feel like it's such a powerful illustration of the idea that people like Patrona who are in poverty Mm -hmm. and have are trapped in these vicious cycles have nowhere to go. It is so easy for me to picture an ending of this book where this terrible thing happens to Patrona and she gets pregnant and then she has to marry him anyway because that's all that she has. That's like the only way that she can have money so her sister can eat. Like that's the illustration of the whole of the whole book. And I thought that the weird roundabout ending didn't necessarily undermine it, but it took this weird, unnecessary turn when the theme could have been strengthened by just going straight to the end of her marrying this terrible boyfriend. Completely. And I don't, yeah, I don't think it served well to have a sort of redemption. I also question the historical accuracy of how he would just be able to leave the guerrilla movement. It's like the mafia. You can't just leave. Yeah, you can't easily leave and, like, get a good-paying, like, other job and have them never try to ruin your lives, you know? Yeah, like, if you quit, those men can still come back for your sister. Like, they know who you are. They know where you live. They know your name. That rang false to me. And we did come back around to the opening where Chula receives the photograph, and that, I felt, was strong. But I thought we tripped over the finish line a little bit with this one. I agree, especially in Patrona's story. However, I do think Chula's story, I liked how it ended. I liked how her thread ended. And I'm guessing that's probably because that's who, you know, the author was in this situation. Mm -hmm. So it was probably, you know, based on stuff she went through. 
once they had immigrated after the father was kidnapped, the father did eventually return after eight years. So mm-hmm. I was happy for a small bit of a happy ending there. Yeah, I thought they were never going to see him again. But as a result of her father being kidnapped, held hostage, and of having to move to a completely new country, leave all her family behind, Chula develops a lot of anxiety and is... Afraid she refuses to speak in school. She's struggling a lot. Yes. And I liked that that didn't quite get resolved for her magically when her dad came back. Because I thought it was accurate that this is something she's going to be struggling with now. Because she has trauma. She went through a very traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's very realistic for it not just to be fixed because her dad's home. Mm -hmm. And the father goes through trauma. Yeah. You see how... The whole family is is changed by what happened to them. And you're right that it is nice that that doesn't get resolved. Yes. It's nice that they show how they're doing their best to live their lives. Exactly. But that they're not going to be done fixing things by the time the narrative wraps up. Exactly. And I thought that was a very realistic ending. So we still got a little bit of a happy ending for Chula, at least not for Pushona. But it wasn't forced happy. It's just they can – Start the healing journey as a whole family now. We got we got some bittersweet for both of them, but the proportions of bitter and sweet were different for Chula versus Patrona. Yes, exactly. Is there anything else that you have to say before we move on to the history? I don't think so. I think we're ready to move on. All right. So lay it on me. How accurate was this book? Well, obviously, pretty historically accurate because it was based on the author's experience. I would assume so. So this is something the author went through. Violence, drug wars, guerrilla fighters were very common in Colombia at this time, as were the car bombings, which the ones she references in the novel were based on genuine car bombings. Kidnapping and hostage situations were also very prominent. A lot of people at the time knew someone who was kidnapped. And obviously this was a very real threat for the author, you know, both with her father and with the almost kidnapping of her and her sister. Mm -hmm. And middle-class families like hers, like the Santiago's in this book, were impacted by that political violence. It wasn't just the super wealthy. It wasn't the impoverished. It was everyone. That was represented in the book, that That there were some things that, like, they just couldn't get around until the point where they realized, like, we – it doesn't matter that we're a middle-class family. We just have to leave Colombia. Exactly. In an interview with an author, she says that she does know what happened to the real – Patrona figure. Oh, Um, okay. She said for her privacy, it wasn't her story to tell. Of course. I'm Um, glad that she said that. that, But she does know that they had kept in touch. And actually, even after all of this, her family wound up helping the real life Patrona figure, helping her get to a better situation. Oh, good. I don't know if that was implied in the book. I got the sense that their mother helped them because it said she received help from a woman, but it didn't really... There was two women who helped her, the one immediately after the gang rape. And there was someone else but it wasn't really clear who that other woman was. Oh, okay. That must have been – I missed that completely. Okay. And I wonder if it was Chula's mother or not. That would have been – I hope so. And also, as I stated earlier, Chula's family in America is trying to reach out and send messages to their father via a radio station that broadcast to hostage um, victims. There was a real station, a radio program for people kidnapped and held captive by FARC, one of the guerrilla groups, that ran for 22 years and was able to spread those messages. So I thought that was a really powerful thing she included in the novel. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if the actual author used this radio broadcast. As we said, her father was kind of let go immediately because he knew someone in charge there. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really powerful that she included that, which 
would have played such an important role in so many people's lives in trying to send messages to their family members. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this movement of guerrillas kidnapping people in Colombia was so widespread. Even there were wings of American like insurance companies that were hostage negotiators. Yeah. Because if you worked for like an American logging company and mm-hmm. you were in Colombia, you were at risk of getting kidnapped. I'm not saying that that was like 100% like, or that it was even a frequent thing, but it happened. That's- people on behalf of their jobs would get kidnapped by guerrillas in Colombia for that 20-year period of time. And that was definitely a prominent thing in the book too, because I believe Chula's father worked, he wound up switching to an American company and that's played that was a major part of role. it. And a major role in why Chula and her family were able to get out of Colombia. Mm-hmm. And that's specifically an American company because Chula says, the American company says they don't negotiate with terrorists, yeah. which is, of course, the American stance that we don't negotiate. So mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. So overall, I found this novel to be pretty accurate mm-hmm. and obviously elevated to a whole new level because it was based on the author's experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think with that... I am more willing to be forgiving of liberties taken. Yes, 100%. And also part of it is these things are so much more knowable just because they happened so much more recently. Yes, can't flub as much. (laughs) No, exactly. So I'm not surprised that it reflects pretty close to what the reality was. Yes, I agree with that. All right. Should we get into our calculator? I think so. So as you know, data scientist Ashley has provided us with a star rating calculator. Thank you, Ashley. Based on five categories, which we can score one to five or, you know, percentages as well. And those categories are historical accuracy, vibes, prose, originality, and characters. And at the same time, I'm going to pull up what I personally rated this on StoryGraph just so we can see how closely they align. All right. Well, you're pulling that up. I'll go first with mine. So I gave this book fours across the board. Historical accuracy, four. Vibes, four. Prose, four. Originality, four. Characters, four. I really liked this book. I didn't think it was perfect, but I enjoyed reading it and I would recommend it to others. So obviously all of those average for a total of four. Incredible math. And I gave it a four, two, five on StoryGraph. Okay. So pretty close. Yeah. So I think for me, kind of the, when I'm rating books, just like kind of based on vibes without our calculator, Mm -hmm. I, for me, a four is a baseline for a book that's like, good. This is a good book. Four. So four, two, five is like a little bit above that. That's just like a bit of a step above, like a normal good book. So yeah, I really like this one. Yeah, no, I I liked this too. Um, and I think the more I've sat with it, the more my personal rating probably has changed and I'm probably going to edit and story graph a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that we maybe should have led with this, this book isn't very long. It's a little over 300 pages. Yeah. But we both, we both agree on this. It read slowly. It did. That it was did the one thing slowly. that I think held it back a little bit. It was not a fast read despite being short. It was pretty dense. And in an opposite way than Snowflower and the Secret Fan because I remember saying – that that one felt like I was reading it for a long time, but in a good way. This one felt like I was reading it for a long time. And we didn't really know why. In a negative way. Yes. Okay, so as for me, I gave it a four for historical accuracy. For vibes, I gave it a three just because some of those points of confusion where it didn't really get clarified kind of... Stuck with you. Stuck with me. Prose, I gave it a four because I thought... Again, very poetic. And she made a child's perspective sound eloquent, which can be very difficult. Yeah. And the switch between those two styles was pretty clear. The dreamlike state of Patrona and then the sort of more realistic style and a childish style of Chula. I thought they showed some prowess on her part to go back and forth between those two. Agreed. 
For originality, I gave it a four, and for characters, I gave it a three, again, because I had some difficulties with some of the characters understanding their motivations and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Overall, that gets me to 3.6, and I did originally rate it as a three in Storygraph, but the more I've sat with it, I think I'm going to actually change it to a 3.5, because Mm -hmm. I think it's grown on me the more I've reflected. Mm -hmm. This is almost an inversion of how we read Hamnet, because I feel like we agreed on all of our thoughts on it. We thought like, oh, this is this way, this is this way. But the importance of those things to us just differed. Yes. But it's the inverse, whereas you liked Hamnet more than I did, I liked this book more than you did. Yes. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I think we have the same threads of difficulty with this book, too. Yeah. But again, their importance to our individual reading styles varied. Definitely. Um, which is good, because I feel like you should not always agree with your friends on everything you read, because discourse is half the fun. Absolutely. And why we have the podcast. Otherwise, this would just be a synopsis podcast, and that would be very boring. Exactly. And so, just wait a few weeks when we get to some that we really did not like. Oh, man. There's some flops coming. Don't worry about it. And speaking of that... We felt very stupid for not thinking of this for our first two episodes. We were like, hmm, we should have a word between five and flop, but I don't know what that is. And then we recorded the first two episodes, and then I was like, Aaron, it's fine. Of course. Fine. So that being said, adding our new rating in there, Aaron, do you think this book is flop, fine, or five? I would say fine, leaning five. Mm -hmm. It's Definitely a bit above the midpoint for me, but mm-hmm. it falls more into fine. I would not call this a five for me. I wouldn't call it a five either, but I think I agree that it's a level above fine. Unless yeah. we want to add two more words, I think that would get complicated. Yeah, I was going to say how this can be a project for data scientists, Ashley. Yeah. In terms of the thumbs up, thumbs down scale, this is a thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, definitely. We yeah. would recommend this book. Yes. And we are very happy that we read it. Thank you to Ingrid Rojas Contreras for yes. writing this book. If you ever want to come on the pod, you're always welcome. Of course, that is a standing offer for anyone who has written a book that we feature or Gail Carson Levine. Yes. All right. So, Erin, what are we reading next week? Next week, we'll be reading Homegoing by Ya Jesse, which is based in both Ghana and North America, but counting it more as an Africa continent book because the theme is going home. Well, you know, if we're readers of the world, books are going to straddle different continents sometimes. That's just how it's going to be. All right. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Our username is fiverflop underscore pod for all our latest updates. And if you have any books you want us to read on future seasons, we have a recommendation form in our bio that you can submit your ideas, books, authors, criticize us, praise us, any of the above. And if you have anything else you need to say, you can email us at fiverfloppodcast at gmail.com. And happy reading. (laughs) 